You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 323 by Rudolf Steiner, 18 lectures entitled Interdisciplinary Astronomy, translated by Frederick Amrine. This is Lecture 6, given on January 6, 1921. You will have seen from everything said so far that in order to explain natural phenomena, we need to find a path leading beyond mere mathematical understanding. That we don't dispute the justification of a mathematical approach is implicit in the whole spirit of these lectures. But we were able to define precisely the point beyond which it's impossible to go with mathematical concepts, in the celestial spaces on the one hand and in the realm of embryology on the other. We have to cut a path to other methods of cognition, The purpose of these lectures is to show concretely that certain expanded modes of cognition are justified. I will try to show that the prevailing paradigm, which seeks to understand merely by gazing outward into celestial space, whether with the unaided eye or equipped with optical instruments, needs to be put on a far wider basis, so that not only a part, but the whole of our human nature becomes the, in quotes, reagent for a deeper penetration of the heavens. Today I'll try, if not to prove, at least to indicate, the validity of such an expanded methodology by approaching the problem from quite another side. It may seem paradoxical in relation to our present theme, but the reasons will soon become clear. In studying human evolution on earth, we must surely find something within that evolution itself to guide us to the genesis of the celestial phenomena, for otherwise we would be assuming that extraterrestrial processes have no influence on our human constitution or on human evolution, something that certainly is not the case. Nobody assumes that although admittedly the influences may be overestimated by some and underestimated by others, it will therefore be plausible, at least from the point of view of method, to put the question, quote, can we find anything in human evolution itself indicating paths leading out into the heavens, Close quote. Asking this question, we will take our start not from spiritual science, but from the facts which anyone can gather for herself by empirical historical research. Looking back over the evolution of humanity, in the realm where human thoughts unfold, where the human faculties of knowledge find expression, where, so to speak, the reciprocal relationship between human beings and the world takes on the most highly sublimated forms we are led back to begin with, as you may gather from my book titled The Riddles of Philosophy, to a great revolution only a couple centuries ago. Indeed, I have often pointed to a certain moment during the 15th century 
one of the most important in the more recent phase of human evolution. The indication is, of course, approximate. We have to think of the period about the middle of the Middle Ages. Needless to say, we are referring only to what was going on within Western civilization. Conventional histories generally fail to appreciate how deep and incisive a change was then taking place in human thought and cognition. Unfortunately, for some time, there has been a downright aversion, among philosophers especially, to any real study and appreciation of that epoch in European civilization, which might be called the age of scholasticism. During that age, profoundly significant questions arose within human intellectual life. If you enter into them deeply enough, you will come to feel that these questions didn't merely spring from the realm of logical deduction, the form in which the Middle Ages usually clothed them, but rather from the very depths of our human nature. You need only recall the fundamental debate about nominalism versus realism, or, again, what it signified in the spiritual development of Europe that attempts were made to prove the existence of God. There was, for instance, the so-called ontological proof of the existence of God. From thought itself, from the pure concept, humanity wanted confirmation. They wanted substantiation of God's existence. Think what that means within the evolution of human knowledge as a whole. Something was stirring in the deepest recesses of human nature. It finds fully conscious expression only in the philosophical deductions that were cultivated at the time. Thinkers were perplexed as to whether the concepts and ideas that we form and put into words in some way stand for a reality, or whether they're merely formal summaries of the external sensory data. The nominalists regarded our general concepts as formal summaries that have no significance for external reality, but rather only help us to find our way about, to orient ourselves in an otherwise confusing outer world. On the other hand, the realists, an expression used in a sense that's very different from ours today, asserted that something real is to be found in general concepts or universals, that in these universals our inner life takes hold of something real that they're not merely convenient generalizations of experience or abstract schemas. Often in more public lectures, I have related how my old friend Vincenz Clauer, a latter-day scholastic, though he would not have claimed to be one, revealed himself to be a thoroughgoing realist in his very interesting work titled the central problems of philosophy in their development and partial solution from Thales to Robert Hamerling. He was a neo-scholastic, at least with regard to epistemological issues. The nominalists, he said, assert that the universal, in quotes, lamb, is nothing but a convenient generalization arising in the human mind. So, too, the concept, in quotes, wolf, It's only that matter is put together in different ways in the lamb and in the wolf. We only summarize it in the schema lamb or wolf, as the case may be. 
Well, he suggested, try for some time to keep a wolf away from all other food and give it only lambs to eat. Then, after the necessary lapse of time, the matter in the wolf will be nothing but lamb, and yet it won't have lost its wolfishness. Therefore this wolfishness of the wolf, expressed in the general concept wolf, must be something real. Now the fact that the so-called ontological proof of God's existence could arise at all bears witness to a deep and thoroughgoing change then taking place in human nature. Only a short time before, it basically wouldn't have occurred to anyone within European culture to want to prove God's existence, for this was felt to be self-evident. Only when this feeling was no longer alive, did people begin to crave proof. If you feel living inner certainty about something, then you don't want to prove it. But at that time something was slipping away from humanity, which until then had been alive quite as a matter of course, and something else entered in whereby the human spirit was diverted into very different channels, very different needs. I could adduce many other examples, showing precisely at the highest levels of thought and knowledge, though you may take the word highest with a grain of salt, what turmoil was unfolding in the deepest recesses of human nature during that period of the Middle Ages. Now, surely, we can't deny that there has to be some connection between what's unfolding within the life of humanity and extra-telluric phenomena. In the most general sense, we have to assume that there is some connection. What it is in detail we shall discover in due course. Hence, we may ask, we want to proceed very carefully, so we need only ask, quote, how did these inner experiences, which humanity was undergoing on earth, around the middle of the Middle Ages, introduce themselves into the evolution of the planet earth? Close quote. Parenthesis, keeping in mind that the same evolutionary process could also lead us back out again, close parenthesis, Was it perhaps a special moment in the evolution of the earth as such? Is there anything that we can point to as a concrete determination of this moment in human evolution? We can indeed point to something of significance in this connection. There was another time which exerted a profound effect in the same regions of the earth where during the Middle Ages these events were taking place in the most highly sublimated forms of human spiritual thinking. The Middle Ages, during which humanity experienced such profound turmoil, lie in the middle between two endpoints, as it were, on a timeline. Within the region in which this turmoil took place, within the region of Europe, these, in quotes, endpoints, represent time periods in which especially intense activity of human life and culture could not happen. If we begin at this medieval moment, which I'll describe as A, see figure 1, and then move backward and forward an equal amount of time into a fairly distant past and a fairly remote future, we come to points of time representing a certain barrenness and death of civilization 
in the very regions where human life experienced such turmoil during the 13th, 14th and 15th centuries. About 10,000 years after and 10,000 years before this moment, A in figure 1, we reach the maximum development of the ice ages in these very regions. Ice ages certainly wouldn't permit any outstanding development in human life and culture. So when we survey the evolution of these European regions, we find an ice age, a laying waste of civilization, around 10,000 BCE, and symmetry suggests that, we should find the same again around 10,000 CE. The deep turmoil within human life just described happened midway between two such barren epochs. As I said just now, there is a certain reluctance to pay attention to this period in the development of philosophy, the 13th and 14th centuries. It's not yet seen clearly for what it is. Yet if one has a feeling for the evolution of the life of human knowledge, one is aware that, to this day, our philosophical history is influenced by the after-effects of the turmoil at that time. It showed itself in other domains of civilization, too. It's just that it came to expression most clearly and symptomatically in this phase of development of the life of thought and knowledge. Now, as you know, this phase of development, appearing about the middle of the Middle Ages, was an upheaval in European civilization. I have often spoken of it in anthroposophical lectures. It was an upheaval. The whole trajectory of human evolution was changed. It had begun long before in the 8th century BCE. We can describe it as an extremely intense development of human intellectuality. What we have been cultivating since then has been focused on the development of ego consciousness. All aberrations and all wisdom gained in the general life of humanity since that medieval time are really due to this ego development, to the ever-growing elaboration of the consciousness of the I, capital. The consciousness of the ancient Greeks and even of the Latins both the ancient tribe of the Latins and their descendants, the Latin peoples of today, did not lay so much stress on the ego. Even in language, for the most part, in grammar and syntax, they don't pronounce the I capital so expressly. Rather, they include it in the verb. The I is not yet so sharply delineated. Take Aristotle and Plato and above all the greatest philosopher of antiquity, Heraclitus, Throughout their work, the ego is not yet so prominent. The way in which they take hold of phenomena with their intellects is still relatively selfless. Parenthesis, we have to be careful not to overstate the case here, but the word selfless is appropriate in some relative sense. Close parenthesis. We don't see yet the kind of sharp dissociation of the self from external phenomena, that the new age, the age of the consciousness soul in which we are now living, strives to accomplish. Going still farther back, beyond the 8th century BCE, we come to what I have termed the Egypto-Chaldean Age. You will find the details in my book titled Esoteric Science. Once again the constellation of the human faculties was different. 
during this age, which like the others lasted for over 2,000 years, humanity was not yet relating external phenomena to one another through any kind of intellection. Instead, people apprehended the world, right down to the compass points, via feeling and direct perception. It's mistaken and fruitless to equate what's still extant of the astronomy of Egypt and Chaldea with our own intellectual notions, the kind of notions we ourselves have inherited from the Greco-Roman age. It's necessary that one inwardly metamorphoses the soul somewhat so as to enter into the quite different mentality then prevailing, whereby humans took hold of the world in simple feeling and sensation, where the concept was not yet separated from the sensation. Even in the realm of actual sensations or sensory impressions, as can be shown historically and philologically, their language is not concerned to capture the nuances of the blue and violet shades of color, whereas they had a very keen sensation of the red and yellow regions of the spectrum. Indeed, the sensation of the dark colors can be seen to have arisen simultaneously with the capacity for intellectual concepts. The Egypto-Chaldean age, extending from 747 BCE about 2,160 years farther into the past, takes us to the beginning of the third millennium BCE. Still earlier, say in the fourth or fifth millennium BCE, we come upon an age when humanity's whole outlook and mode of perception were so different from ours today that it's hard for us, without recourse to spiritual scientific methods, to recover the way in which the peoples of that time were relating to the world around them. It was not only a feeling and sensing, it was a living with the outer happenings, being right in them. These prehistoric humans felt themselves to be an organic member of the whole of the world around them, much as my arm, if it were conscious, would feel itself to be a member of my body. Thus we see that humanity's relationship to the world around them had a completely different inner texture. And if we go still farther back, we find this concrescence with the surrounding world to be even more enhanced. In those very early times, civilizations were to develop only where special geographical conditions made it possible. I mean, the time described in my book titled Esoteric Science as the ancient Indian civilization, much earlier than the culture of the Vedas, which was but a final echo of it. The ancient Indian epoch comes remarkably close to the time when glacial conditions prevailed in our regions of the earth. A culture like the ancient Indian could only develop when such climatic conditions, more or less, as we enjoy in the temperate zone today, extended to what's now the equator. You can deduce it simply from the relative advance or retreat of the ice. Tropical conditions did not come about in India until a much later time, when, in more northerly regions, the ice had receded. We see, therefore, how the inner evolution of humanity undergoes modifications 
hand in hand with changing terrestrial conditions, as conditions on the Earth's surface modify themselves in the aforementioned way. Only those who take a very short-term view of humanity's evolution upon Earth will imagine that the scientific ideas we entertain today have any absolute validity, that now we're finally arrived at the scientific truth, so to speak. Nevertheless, anyone who develops a more penetrating view of the metamorphic quality of evolving human consciousness will see immediately how this metamorphosing will proceed and how certain regions of the earth where cultural life is currently configured in a certain way will at some future time inevitably be laid waste again. By calculating the temporal distance between our time and these past events, you can determine how long it will be until a new glacial age overtakes our present civilization. Moreover, assuming that we can perhaps find some connection between the celestial phenomena and these facts of earthly evolution, the successive ice ages and the midpoint between them, this will lead on to a further insight. That which takes place on earth in the most highly refined realms of cultural life in the life of thought and knowledge, even that is relative to earthly relationships. Hence we can say, purely empirical reflection shows that humanity is what it is by virtue not just of earthly relationships, but also by virtue of extraterrestrial relationships. Once more then, starting with the empirical data, as is the norm in science, but now across a much broader disciplinary range than usual, our view is expanded until we recognize a relationship such as we have just been describing. Now, in a sense, even today, we can perceive how a certain human temperament is called forth by the relation between the earth and the celestial bodies. In an earlier lecture, it was pointed out how different the configuration of inner faculties tends to be in equatorial and in polar regions. Investigating this further, it turns out that the different relationship of the earth to the sun proves to be the determining factor. Parenthesis, as to the different mutual relations of earth and sun, there is perhaps more to the story, as we shall see, but for now. Let's just work with what can be accessed via conventional notions. Close parenthesis. It's the differing relationship that causes inhabitants of the polar regions to be more closely bound to their bodies. Inhabitants of the polar regions are less able to rise out of their bodily organisms and achieve a free exercise of their inner faculties. We need only picture to ourselves how differently the inhabitants of polar regions are taken hold of by something which in ourselves stays more in the background. We, of the temperate zone, experience rapid alternation of day and night. Think how long this alternation becomes as you approach the polar zone. It's as though the day were to lengthen out into a year. I described to you the forces at work in the little child, deep within the bodily nature from year to year, from birth to the change of teeth, and how the independent activity of the life of soul, given up as it is to the quicker rhythm of the day, 
gradually frees and detaches itself from this more corporeal influence. This is not possible to the same extent in the polar regions. It's the yearly rhythm which will there tend to make itself felt. The emphasis is more on the corporeal side. Inhabitants of the polar zones don't rest themselves free to the same extent from what works within the body. Think now of the scanty relics that have been preserved from the civilization of very early times that have survived the Ice Age. Then you'll see that there were times in which a kind of polarization, parenthesis, please understand the expression in the right sense, close parenthesis, extended right across the present temperate zone, so that conditions were prevailing here not unlike those in the present polar regions. What's now pressed back toward the North Pole simply extended then over a considerable part of the earth. Please keep your thinking free of present-day explanations and ideas here, for otherwise the pure phenomenon will be obscured. Consider just the bare phenomenon in itself. Conditions on the earth today are such that we have the three types, inhabitants of the tropical, the temperate, and the polar zones, respectively. Of course, they influence each other, so that in outer reality the phenomenon does not appear quite so purely. Nevertheless, what you see here in a spatial form, you find it again in time as you go backward. Going back in time, we come to a, in quotes, North Pole, as it were, in time, in the history of civilization. Going forward, we come to a pole again. Keeping in mind that the polar influence on humanity is connected with the mutual relations between earth and sun, we have to imagine that this change, which has taken place since the Ice Age, the depolarizing, as it were, is connected with the relationship between earth and sun that must have changed. And the phenomena themselves call forth a question from us. What? could have happened. So, what is it in the genesis of celestial space that's indicated by this? Let's look at the matter more closely. Of course, these things will be different in the northern and southern hemispheres, but that's not material. Answering that objection requires only that we adjust our model accordingly. The real underlying processes remain the same. We need to start with the data that are empirically given. What's revealed, then, if we simply approach the phenomena without a hypothesis, without any preconceived notions? What reveals itself to us then? Then, we have to say, the earth and the processes unfolding on earth appear as an expression of cosmic events, cosmic events that manifest themselves in certain rhythms. Something that revealed itself about the 10th millennium BCE will show itself again about the 11th millennium CE. What's in between will also be repeated in a sense. What lies between the two ice ages will undoubtedly have been there before in former cycles. What we have there is a rhythm. Our attention is drawn to a rhythmic process. And now, Look out into the celestial phenomena. Let's emphasize one fact especially, 
to which I have often pointed in my lectures. You have the following. This will be only a very rough sketch. You know that the vernal point, the place where the sun rises in the spring, gradually progresses through the ecliptic. You also know that today the vernal point is in the constellation of Pisces, before it was in Aries, still earlier in Taurus. That was the time of the cult of the bull, among the Egyptians and Chaldeans. Still earlier it was in the constellation of Gemini, and then in Cancer, in Leo. This already brings us very nearly to the last ice age. Thinking it through to a conclusion, we know that the vernal point goes all the way round the ecliptic and that this periodicity is called the Platonic World Year, the Great Cosmic Year, lasting approximately 25,920 years. A wide range of processes are comprised in these 25,920 years, involving, among other things, this rhythmic alternation on the Earth, Ice Age, Intermediate Period, Ice Age, Intermediate Period, and so on. At the time we spoke of, when there was that profound turmoil within the spiritual life of humanity, the vernal point was entering the sign of Pisces. In the Greco-Roman age, it had been in the sign of Aries, previous to that in Taurus, and so on. We get back to Leo, or Virgo, more or less, during the time when glacial conditions prevailed over the greater part of Europe and also in America. Looking into the future, there will be another ice age in these regions when the vernal point reaches the sign of Scorpio. This rhythm is contained within what takes its course in 25,920 years. Although admittedly vast in scale, it's nevertheless a true rhythm. Now, as I have often mentioned, this rhythm recalls, purely numerically, yet another rhythm. We don't want to make more of it than that, but if it's simply a question of rhythms, and the rhythms are expressible in numbers, and if the numbers are the same, the rhythms are also the same. You know that the number of breaths we take in a day, inhalations and exhalations, is approximately 18 per minute. Calculate the number of breaths in a 24-hour day, and you get the same number as before, 25,920. Hence our daily lives exhibit the same periodicity, the same rhythm, as is revealed by the movement of the vernal point in the Platonic world year. And it's within the course of a day that human beings show this rhythm, a single day. A day, therefore, with respect to breathing, corresponds to the Platonic year. The vernal point, connected as it is with the sun, revolves, as it were, in the course of 25,920 years. But there is also the apparent movement of the sun through the 24-hour day, while we humans are taking our 25,920 breaths. The microscopic image reflects the macroscopic. If then there was a being who breathed in and out once a year, a simple-minded hypothesis, no doubt, but let's run a thought experiment. Such a being, if it lived long enough, 
would undergo over 25,920 years the same process humans undergo in a day. We reflect, as it were, in miniature what's manifested in the great cosmic process. These things make little impression on folks today because they're not accustomed to look at the qualitative aspect of the world. When one's optic is quantitative, the kinds of things that express themselves in rhythms play a small role. Therefore, scientists look for relationships among the numbers other than those that manifest as rhythms. They pay less heed to the latter today. But in the epochs when humanity experienced more directly its relationship to the universe, when it felt more immersed in the phenomena of the cosmos, such things made a deep impression. As we go back through the history of humanity, beyond the second or third millennium BCE, we find great attention paid to the Platonic world year. I mentioned yesterday, not to explain it, but by way of illustration, the ancient Indian yoga system. Humanity entered deeply into a living inner experience of the breathing process, trying to make it conscious. In doing so, it dawned upon the ancient Indians that there was this relationship between our human rhythm, repeatedly inhaled by the soul in a condensed form, and the phenomena of the macrocosm. Therefore, they spoke of their own inhalation and exhalation, and of the mighty breathing of Brahma, a single breath spanning an entire year, for which 25,920 years are a day, a day of the Great Spirit. I don't want to indulge in criticism here, but one can begin to develop real respect for this great distance that older cultures once felt between themselves and the spirit of the macrocosm whom they revered. They felt themselves to be about as small relative to the spirit of the macrocosm as a day is to 25,920 years. It was indeed a great spirit, a very great spirit, whom ancient cultures imagined in this way, and whose relation to humanity was experienced with due modesty. It would not be uninteresting to compare how we moderns feel about the distance between ourselves and God. Don't we often conceive the deity as little more than a slightly idealized human being? This may not seem very relevant to our subject, but in fact it is. If we want to develop real knowledge within this sphere, we have to find our way from what's merely calculable into entirely different realms. Indeed, our study of Kepler's laws and all that followed from them showed how our very calculations leading as they do to incommensurable numbers, impel us of their own accord into a realm beyond mere calculation. The end of Lecture 6